Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger. This month, we have a great episode with Dr. Claudette Lejeune. Dr. Lejeune is a professor within the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at NYU. She's also the Chief Safety Officer of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery and the Director of Quality and Patient Safety within the Division of Adult Reconstruction. Dr. Lejeune is a prolific researcher and was kind enough to allow me to have a mini journal club in which we discussed two of her more recent publications. I had a fantastic time speaking with Dr. Lejeune, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Claudette Lejeune. Dr. Claudette Lejeune, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. I'm so excited to speak with you today, and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate your having me on, and, and thanks again for inviting me. Perfect. Well, I would love to start at the beginning. And so I was hoping in your own words, if you can describe your background, where you grew up, did your schooling, your medical education, and your post-education years. Well, uh, you know, that's a, I grew up in New York, so I'm a native New Yorker. I was born in Queens at a county hospital. Um, <laughs> my dad had come from the Dominican Republic, so he emigrated there. So I'm first generation on that side. My mom uh, is Italian, was Italian-American, so had grown up also in New York. Hmm. Um, I did my undergraduate. I went to public high school, and right. then I did my undergraduate at Penn, and I majored in English, which really doesn't do a lot for medicine. I worked then uh, for a few years in insurance at Cigna. Uh, And that's when I realized I wanted to go back to medical school. So I did a post back and um, at Penn Mm. and then uh, went to medical school at Cornell in Mm -hmm. Manhattan. Uh, Then after that, I did my residency at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, Mm -hmm. and then a fellowship at the Insel Scott Kelly Institute at Lenox Hill in adult reconstruction. Uh, and then I was in private practice for a little while and then was recruited over to join uh, NYU Langone Orthopedics, which at the time was Hospital for Joint Diseases. And now here I am. Wow. That's incredible. Gosh. So you're a New Yorker pretty much through and through. Can't you tell by how I talk? <laughs> <laughs> Only a little. Well, when I lived in Minnesota, I lost some of it, but then it came back. Oh my back. gosh. That's funny. That's funny. I would love if you could tell us the story of when you knew you wanted to do orthopedic surgery. Oh, that's I love telling this story because it has to do with my family. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was in medical school, I we would study in a big room and, and I would call my great aunt Loretta while I was studying because she was such a wonderful person and I loved talking to her. She always made me feel good. Now, great aunt Loretta was my mother's aunt Mm -hmm. and she had lost her husband when she had four young children. So she had to raise them on her own. She survived breast cancer. She was one of these women, like just gets, gets through everything and manages. Uh, But I would call her when I was studying. And when I was a first year and second year medical student, she would then tell me how much her hips hurt and that she couldn't walk and that she Mm. might not be able to make it. She was so depressed and she didn't know what to do. And I said, well, Aunt Loretta, why don't you get your hips replaced? And to her, that was the scariest thing in the world, but she eventually did it. Mm. And then she was just back. That was, she was back to her old self. She was back to being the woman of the year in her church. She was, you Mm. know, her old self. She had a boyfriend. I mean, she became the woman that she used to be. And all these other things that didn't get her, hip arthritis was the thing that was going to get her. Mm. 
And it was able to be solved. And I said to myself, after I saw this transformation, that's what I want to do. I want to take these people who have so much left to give their families their communities and get them mobile again and let them them do what they want to do. Because if that's the thing that's stopping them, we can fix it. And she can fix it. The name of your (laughs) podcast. Thank you. I so it's interesting. You knew you wanted to do joints from the get-go rather than like, oh, I want to do orthopedic surgery, and then you found your way to joints. Whereas for you, it was very much joints from the beginning. Well, I I wasn't committed to joints. I just liked orthopedics, but then of course it was total joint replacement that really was the thing that made the impact on me. Hmm. Uh, so that carried through, and I kept right. thinking, oh, why don't I do this? Why don't I do that? And back then, the pressure for women was, oh, you're just going to go into hands or pediatrics. That's what you did if you were a woman. Um, And so it was unusual. It wasn't unheard of, but it was unusual for a woman to go into hip Mm -hmm. and knee reconstruction. Um, But again, that was the thing that that spoke to me most. Hmm. That's interesting. And yet now look at we are where we are today, where we have the whole women in arthroplasty group um, which is just, I've, I know many of women who are in there and they're just all fantastic. So it's nice to see that the numbers are continuing to rise in that group. It's great. And you know, I've, I've asked for the numbers from, uh, AUKUS, the American association of hip and knee surgeons. I said, so how many female surgeons are full members of AUKUS? And that means you have to have gone through mm-hmm. past your boards and been a member of AOS before you can get in. So it's a few years delay from graduating residency. Um, and last year there were 77 women wow. surgeons. Yeah. Hmm. So you think about, oh, there's so many. No. And that's full fellows. So there's people in the pipeline that have not yet made it there. Right. But I, I made a, a, I like making infographics, even though I'm not that great at it, but I made one <laughs> that said there, there are more people that have walked in space than there are female surgeon fellows of a, of AUKUS, because oh there's about gosh. 200 and something people who have walked in space um, in the world. So, so you think about that, that's pretty telling that, you know, we're a little bit behind the eight ball here, but we're getting there. And I think what it takes is having people in more senior positions to serve as role models for Mm -hmm. younger surgeons to say, oh, wow, I can do that. If she can do that, so can I, and how do I do it? Help map it out Mm -hmm. because it's not the same, uh, for us as it is for other people to go through and become, um, joint surgeons, it's a little, little different path and you have to, to map it out for people. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. It's funny. I think I have such a skewed perception. I was like, oh yeah, there's so many people and you're like 77. I'm like, that doesn't even fill a conference room just yet. Nope. Oh gosh. It's all right. Room to grow. We got this. Um, now Dr. Lajam, I, what I wanted to do with you, which I'm very excited about is kind of a mini journal club because you, you are a very prolific researcher. And so I wanted to kind of select two of your most recent articles and kind of talk to them with the senior author. Um, and so the first one, which I think is very interesting, which is uh, entitled Occupational Hazards of Orthopedic Surgery Exposures, Infection, Smoke, and Noise. Um, and this was published in the Journal of Arthroplasty in March 2022. And I was hoping you can first talk about what the inspiration was behind this article. That's a great question. And thanks for asking. So the inspiration for the occupational hazards concept uh, has been around for a long time, at least for me. In our uh, curriculum at NYU Langone, we have lectures to the arthroplasty residents and fellows weekly. Mm -hmm. And I have been giving this talk for years about occupational hazards and 
needle sticks and things like that, talking about folks, you need to be aware of these hazards and you need to protect yourself, especially mm -hmm. radiation shielding and things like that. And um, one of my colleagues who had used to be at NYU uh, remembered that lecture mm. series that I did and said, hey, we should do a symposium at AUKUS about that. And we mm -hmm. did. And because it was a symposium, they invited us to write an article about it. So that's really oh, nice. where the genesis, the genesis of that article. Um, so this is something that I've been giving a talk about for years, but then it really was shaped and turned into a much more um, robust uh, concept through mm -hmm. that symposium. And there are a few other articles that are related to it that have to do with other hazards. So I just spoke on those for the mm -hmm. symposium. So I just wrote on those for the article. Interesting. Very cool. And I, uh, one of the things that I was absolutely shocked about um, was a statement that stated by the end of the training, 99% of surgical residents will have sustained a needle stick injury more than half will go unreported. What was your thoughts or what were your thoughts when you first saw this factoid? I wasn't surprised at all. Uh, <laughs> if you ask a room full of people in a room who do orthopedics and you ask them to close their eyes, okay, who's been, who's had a needle stick in their career? Right. Everyone will raise their hand. Mm -hmm. uh, I, it's unusual for any of us never to have had that happen to them at least once. And I'm sure more than once for most people. Mm -hmm. Um, and not just a needle stick, some sort of a sharps injury. That was right. the, the, um, and many people don't report it just because it's such a big hassle to do that. Uh, or at least used to be, it's a little easier now to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was a resident, you would, I was stuck by a needle that, uh, had hepatitis, was a hepatitis C patient, a patient who mm -hmm. had a hep C before we had treatment for it. And I had right. to take the treat. I had to take the medicine and it was horrible. Mm. Um, it's no fun to do that. So, yeah. um, yeah. So it, if you ask everybody to raise their hand, almost everybody raises their hand. Uh, right. and if, if you then just narrow it down to residents, it's almost all of them. Right. No. And I think what's, I know, I know in my own experience, I've both been, and as we talk about kind of differences between male surgeons, female surgeons, I, I've had been stuck both when I was uh, not pregnant. And then when I was pregnant and it's such a different level of anxiety when you get stuck while being pregnant. And I fortunate, I was third trimester. So it was blatantly obvious that I was, I was, I was at the waddle stage. So there was no surprise that I was pregnant. Right. <laughs> um, and it was a distal humerus fracture late at night and it was the double K wires. And to this day, I still hate those K wires that, um, are double ended. And I remember I, like, I couldn't focus for the rest of the case. Cause I was just thinking about not only like, what if this patient has something, but also like, would I even be able to take the medications pro like for prophylaxis? Like, what am I allowed to? And it's just this different level of anxiety in comparison to like, if it's just, you know, if it's just my own life, I'm like, Mark. but if it was my son's, it was just a whole different level. Oh my goodness. Well, your own life is worth something as well, but <laughs> um, well, that's absolutely true. And it's a problem that uh, I don't know that we have a good solution for, right. except for, you know, can we test everybody, especially in a trauma setting, you can't mm -hmm. test everybody for diseases. Um, and one of the points that's made in the article is how difficult it is for physicians to ask for protections right. uh, through regulation and through policy, a hospital policy or whatever. Um, we're seen as 
oh, you just don't want to take care of patients. You're a this phobe or a that phobe because you mm -hmm. want to test people uh, because you're worried about your own health. Um, whereas if a patient is affected by something, changes are made. And right. that way goes way back to the 90s um, when a dentist, and I remember the names, I remember, I didn't have to even look them up for that article. Um, the, the, the doctor was uh, Dr. Acer and the patient was Kimberly Bergalis and the doctor had HIV and he infected his patient. Mm -hmm. And she was on the cover of magazines. It was huge. Um, and that um, created some problems for any physicians who were living with HIV. Right. Uh, because then they were told they should not do certain procedures if they had it. But nobody asked for testing of patients to protect mm -hmm. doctors or physicians or any kind of health worker. So it's very interesting that that's how things tend to work. If it has to do with the patient, changes are made. If it has to do with our own safety, very seldom are changes made. Right. Yeah. Ugh. It's just, it's, it's upsetting, but it's true. You know, it's so true. Even at, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate because it's like, there's so many ways in which we all healthcare workers, I think, put ourselves at risk and, you know, like COVID pandemic as a prime example. Um, and especially like as residents, like I remember I was a consult resident while pregnant during the height of the COVID pandemic. And it was just, it's such a different level of putting yourself at risk. Yeah. Well, and, and you're supposed to just do it without question. Yes. Um, and it's, it's, it's asking quite a bit of folks who are not receiving the rewards that physicians used to receive financially mm -hmm. or with regard to respect for you. I mean, calling you a provider, I think that is the biggest insult that anyone can say to a first person who's gone through more than 10 years of post-college training. Right. Is that you're, you know, you should be doing this for free. We deserve this without you being compensated for it or acknowledged for it. Mm -hmm. um, so when you think about that, you know, we, we are really being shrunk in terms of the value of, of our lives and our, our education over mm -hmm. time. I've been, again, I've been here for a long time. So I've seen this happen over time and it makes me uncomfortable and sad. And, you know, you do what you can to try to prevent it from happening, but it happens. Right. And it's a lot of it is economics. Purely they don't want to pay us. They want us all to work for hospitals. They want to manage the hospitals and the hospitals manage us. Yeah. And your experience in private practice, you know, I know that you were in private practice first and then you came um, to NYU. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the pros of that private practice that you wish you could see in your practice today? Well, you know, as I said, you know, things have changed quite a bit since I've been <laughs> in practice. So I was in private practice for a short time, uh, only three years, and mm -hmm. um, I was alone. So that I don't recommend <laughs> for anyone. I don't Solo think you can do private practice when you first come out. Wow. In New York. Yeah. And it's very difficult. New York has a terrible malpractice environment. Um, it's very, very bad for physicians. And that's why we lose so many physicians and good physicians out of New York after they train. People want to train in New York, but they don't want to stay in New York because mm. our practice environment is terrible. And uh, you have such a high tax burden in New York as a physician. So when you put those two things together and you try to pay malpractice premiums as a physician and have to pay all these taxes on top of it, you just can't afford it as a doctor anymore. Right. So people leave. 
Um, so it was, it was a, a different environment a little bit than um, the physician was paid a little more for what they do as mm. opposed to the institution. Uh, but it was a lot of work. Um, if folks are considering a private practice, I would not consider a, a solo private practice unless you live in a, a place or a state where that's possible. Mm. Um, but private practice has a lot of benefits. Um, you can set your own schedule more or less. You uh, have, you're not worrying about publishing and researching mm -hmm. and working with the academic stuff unless you are in a private demic setting. And in that case, you can choose whether you'd like to do that or not. Mm -hmm. um, and the uh, efficiency of your operating experience is probably a little bit better as a private practitioner because your volume can, can be higher because they probably have um, trained PAs or trained assistants in the operating room with you mm -hmm. instead of folks who are learning, which takes time. Yes. Yeah. So those yeah. are what I would say would be, you know, having advantages of your, of a private practice because you can just be more efficient. You can do more surgeries and you probably make more money too. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's so interesting. Um, I do want to go on to some other parts of this article cause it's, it, you, you talked about so much and there's so much to learn. Um, and I think that another part that you talked about was surgical smoke, surgical smoke exposure. Um, and I was hoping you can speak about the general takeaways from your research for our listeners. So I didn't do the research myself. I just looked up a lot of what, what existed. And what's interesting to me is that there's very little on this topic. Mm -hmm. So the information that is presented to us as our risk for surgical smoke really comes from other sources of smoke. Uh, what does particulate matter do to people? What does cigarette smoke do to people? How does particulate matter correlate with cigarette smoke? So a lot of it are jumps of logic from one thing to another that are supposedly connected to try to figure out what our exposure is in the operating room. Hmm. But what struck me was that using cautery mm -hmm. in surgery generates particulate matter that can be inhaled and that one surgery is almost like smoking six cigarettes if you inhaled all that particulate matter, which we don't. We don't sit there and inhale all right, the matter right, as, right. as it comes out. But that matter is like six cigarettes. So if you basically were to inhale all of that, that's like smoking almost two packs a day if you're operating right. at a brisk pace, doing a lot of cautery. And the treatments or the the fix for that is to use smoke evacuators which mostly removes the the particulate matter because regular suction doesn't do it because the suction actually can get can get recirculated the air mm. can get recirculated in the operating room but what i found was that those smoke evacuators that are attached to the cautery mm -hmm. at least in my place most people just take off the suction bar because it gets in the way of using the instrument mm -hmm. so when we try to solve a problem, we shouldn't create another problem so that people don't try try to solve the first problem. And that seems to be a theme yes. in medicine. We try to fix one thing and we create another problem. I know. It's it's so true because I and I'm thinking about, you know, my future life as an orthopedic oncologist, and I'm like, the amount of cautery I will be using, it's a lot. You know, it's not it's not something, and especially like the fact that um you get more particulate matter with fat than you do with more leaner tissue. Yes. And I'm thinking of all the fatty tumors that I have already seen in my training. Um, and it's, it's astounding. And I'm like, goodness gracious, like 
I would, it's crazy how you think like there should have been more done at least. Right. Like I'm entering into the world thinking like, mm, should we have solved this already? Well, we, we've, we've known about this for a long time, but this again goes back to who does it impact? Does it impact the surgeon or the patient? Mm-hmm. And if it, if I, I'm, I can't guarantee, but I'm pretty sure if someone showed that the particulate matter from smoke affected patients adversely and publicized it, we would all of a sudden have tons of smoke evacuators that are better and better technology and that don't get in the way. Because mm-hmm. when it comes down to it, we aren't the priority as physicians. It's right. the patient. And if we can show that somehow the patient is impacted, then perhaps there will be a real change. But until that happens, we have to try to solve the problems in creative ways. Mm-hmm. Now, we are partly at fault for this. We are like, ah, I don't want to be bothered by this. I don't want to deal with this. Or what's the big deal? Most of us minimize these risks to ourselves also because we just want to keep working. Mm-hmm. And that's the just the the mentality of a lot of surgeons. You just kind of, okay, go, go, go. Yes. Just just do your job. Stop, stop worrying about things. But mm-hmm. sometimes you have to worry about them because if you're sick, you can't do your job. Mm-hmm. No, that's so true. So true. And I think one of the more, not more interesting, but another interesting aspect of this article was talking about um, noise induced hearing loss. Um, what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As a joint surgeon, I would be worried. Oh my gosh. It's crazy. Cause I mean, like when you're in those spacesuits, every time I do a joints case, I, I can't hear. And I'm just like, am I, I like, and for me, I'm one of those people where when I go to a restaurant, I like to be at quieter restaurants rather than at restaurants where there's all this background noise. Cause I actually like hearing what people have to say. And I like, you know, really understanding their story, da, 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 da. And when I'm at a place where I can't hear them, I always get so, I feel like I'm a carmangity old person. I get so angry. I'm just like, why can't we go to a quiet restaurant? Um, so I, I felt very validated with this uh, part of the article. <laughs> well, I, I, my spouse has a, a low pitch voice and mm-hmm. those are the tones. And I know this, I can't, I have problems hearing low tones and he talks in low tones and I can't hear half the things he says. And it's not on purpose. He thinks it's on purpose. I'm like, no, right. honey, I really can hear you. It's selective hearing. <laughs> exactly. Um, and it's it's true. Um, I had one of our research fellows go around with a, um, a decibel meter into the operating rooms, and he was tracking the sounds and how loud things were. And banging in the, the stem and a hip was mm-hmm. way over 100. Uh, the, when when uh, a piece of material is caught in the suction, that's way over a hundred, mm. um, in terms of sound. And everyone knows that sound. That's horrible sound. It, it's terrible sound. Everyone has like, to stop you, it. Yeah. You're just like, stop, <laughs> fix it now. Fix it now. Get rid of this. Get rid of this sound. Um, and yeah, so there's a lot of noise in the operating room that we, um, we haven't solved yet. I mean, I've tried different kinds of, um, ear protection, mm-hmm. um, mostly made for shooting. So hmm. there's the firearm industry has a tremendous technology, but I think the settings on those, uh, that equipment is not quite right for a surgical setting because mm-hmm. the firearm for firearms, you just want to get rid of the most loud sounds and amplify the slightly lower sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so the amplification of the quote lower sounds are sounds that interfere with you talking, um, mm-hmm. in an operating room setting, right. whereas on a range shooting a gun, you know, it doesn't matter if you amplify those sounds because there aren't other sounds that are competing mm-hmm. with it. So that technology exists, but I think the settings are off. So if we could create something that could recalibrate 
Mm. what's amplified and what's minimized, we might have a solution, but they aren't available. Right. Yeah. Gosh, that's crazy. Speaking with regard to infection, smoke, noise, after doing all this research, are there, has there been anything that you've changed about your own practice as a result of all the research that you've done? Oof. Um, well, with the, with regard to the noise, as I said, I've tried different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them don't quite work. Um, as we were talking about before we were on air, when technology gets better, I think we're going to see some improvements there. Right. Um, we can get technology that can allow us to communicate with each other in the operating mm-hmm. room while blocking out the sounds we don't want to hear mm-hmm. or making them quieter. Right. Um, with regard to smoke, um, the we have smoke evacuators at our hospital and, and I keep the little sleeve on, but I just cut it so we can use the, mm-hmm. the cautery because it really does get in the way of the cautery. That's the, yes. that's the problem. Yeah. Um, you, you have to be able to use it. <laughs> you can't not use the tool. Um, but I, I don't think other surgeons have adopted that. Um, and then other things like needle sticks. I just had a resident, uh, an intern actually have a, have a sharps injury and we mm-hmm. said, okay, just got to get the testing, tell the patient. Luckily it was an elective patient. So we had done preoperative testing. Mm-hmm. Um, and for us, hepatitis C is one of the things that we do routinely right. uh, in, in a pre-op setting because it is a treatable disease, mm-hmm. um, which is fantastic. I mean, that's something else that's happened in my lifetime. That's basically a miracle. Right. Um, so uh, the fact that, 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 that type of treatment exists now is amazing. And that any patient that doesn't want to take it, that it's available to them. I don't quite understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, so, so, so for needle sticks, just make sure you as a mentor or a chief or a, a attending, you need to be the one that, that leads there and say, look, you were right. stuck. You need to go do this yes. now. Even if obviously, if you need them in the operating room to finish the case, mm-hmm. you need them. But if they, can, you can let them out. Go now and do it. Go scrub yeah. out right now and do it. Um, but that—that's you know that's how we need to move the needle. Yeah, and no, I it, think that we need to keep advocating for our own safety and health. We don't do it enough. Yeah, no, it's so true. I remember I had I was working. Um, I'm the PD chief right now, and so I was doing a case with my program director, Dr. Sochi, and she. Um, we, our scrub tech had a, had a needle stick and it was a weird thing where he was literally putting, cause we do local and he literally put, um, the sleeve of the needle back on and the needle went through the sleeve. So totally weird thing. And we literally told him like, nope, go bite, like leave the room. And he was just like, no, no. Cause he was very much like wanting to stay. And we're just like, no. And I literally, of course, make a joke of it. I'm like, we are self-sufficient women. We can handle ourselves. Don't you worry. Go take care of yourself. But it's just, it's that sentiment of like making sure, like you almost like forcing them to leave to take care of themselves just because they feel like they have a duty to stay in the room. But, and it's just being that person in power, like my program director, who's like, no, we're fine. Go take care of yourself. Well, also, you know, as I'm going to put on my safety officer hat, for a moment that there are, when you think about when bad things happen, mm-hmm. there are reasons for them. Well, the bigger, the bigger umbrella reason is, okay, there's a process that exists and it wasn't followed mm-hmm. or no process exists to protect you against this. So mm-hmm. if no process exists and you recognize something went wrong, you need to create something to help prevent it from happening in the future. Mm-hmm. But if there was a process that exists and it wasn't followed, 
why? How do we fix that? Like, what mm-hmm. was the reason that that happened? Now, most of us are taught when we ha- use a needle, you're not supposed to recap it with two hands. Right. We, we learned that. So, mm-hmm. so the process wasn't followed. So, you know, in that case, yes, this was terrible. You, you, you stuck yourself, but you need to recognize you shouldn't do it this way mm-hmm. because that's how you put yourself at risk for getting stuck. Yes. Now, the second element of safety is which parts of our um, profession are the causes of the problem. Is it a people thing? Is it a process or environment thing? Mm-hmm. Or is it a technological thing? Mm-hmm. So here there's one people element. So that person had a process and didn't follow it. But the second process is, okay, there are needles that have automatic safety things that you can put on. Mm-hmm. Why aren't those the ones used in your hospital? Expensive, so, most likely. Because they're expensive. Exactly. So so yes, there's a there is a process solution to this on top of the, you know, don't cap your needle with two mm-hmm. hands process. So if you want to protect your your most important resource, which are physicians and health workers, mm-hmm. you need to spend a little money protecting them from getting stuck and having to leave the room. Mm-hmm. But nobody studies that. It's very hard to study it mm-hmm. because there's it's a there's so many nuances. You can't yes. study how much time is taken away from practice and how much time is taken away from patient care, how much how many delays are caused by these problems because mm-hmm. we can't count them. There's too many and they're very small, but they right. add up over time. Mm-hmm. How can we prove to our institutions and to the government and to people who make regulations that our safety is very important mm-hmm. and it's worth spending some money? Right. How do we do that? I mean, those are questions that young people need to start thinking about when they write papers as well. Right. No, because I think it's hard, though, because I think like as resident physicians, we are we are a workforce, but we're replaceable. Like it just not like, necessarily. <laughs> I mean, think about it. You know, I mean, yes, there's a lot of people who want to be residents, but um, once you're once we've invested in your training for a couple of years, it's very right. hard to replace you. Yes. Yeah. No, I think it's like it, it, it's we're, we're talking about very big problems that we have here in the world. Um, but I think it's and we're going to solve them right we're now. Gonna, we're going to solve them in this podcast right oh, now. We've got everything. <laughs> I think it's so true, though. It's just like, where does the research need to go? That's another thing. When you write papers about occupational hazards um, and you're being considered for promotion or awards, people Mm -hmm. don't give you awards for writing about this. People don't, you know, get you into special societies for writing about this, but they're important. Mm -hmm. So changing the view of this type of work is important. Mm Mm-hmm. And that goes for also anything written about improving DEI, improving the culture yes. of your job. Yes. Those, those projects tend not to be seen on an equal plane as uh, your specialty specific work. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very important that when you mentor others and you mentor young surgeons that you focus on specialty specific work, especially early in career, because that's what's going to get you the prominence and on the podium. Mm-hmm. And then later in your career, you can then do those things that you really want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the reverse. Do all these things that people want you to do, right. but you don't get credit for them. You don't get the same kind of consideration when it comes to good stuff for you, rewards right. for you yes. um, in your career. So do the specialty stuff first and very politely decline doing the other things that are not going to help you mm-hmm. get where you want to go, especially if you're in academics. 
I mean, I write letters for folks who want to do promotion and um, you see the difference in, in what women have published about and what others have published about. Yeah. Um, Or other people who are underrepresented in orthopedics. And and Mm -hmm. it's important to recognize that, that first of all, those projects have a lot of value and they need to be considered Mm -hmm. on equal plane with with specialty specific work because it's important, but mm-hmm. also that you mentor folks to do the specialty work. Mm-hmm. No, it's so true. I always talk, you know, when people ask me about the podcast, I always tell them it's something I do for funsies. You know, it's not like what I want. It's not what I want to do with my life. It's something I do because I enjoy speaking with people. And it's something where now it's just kind of like four hours a month and it's just kind of a hobby, but it's not like the major thing that I want to focus on in my career. Um, but it's hard but because like, it's, it's not four hours a month because you do much more than just the four hours of work. You do the pre-work and the true. questions and the true. reading. So when you consider all that, you could have written a whole academic paper Yeah, with this, yeah, but it's true. That's, it's a priority of yours and making sure that that's considered on your CV as an mm-hmm. important contribution to the field. Um, that's a barrier that we have not pushed past, I think, mm-hmm. that these new ways to promote your institution, to promote uh, your profession, aren't really seen in the same way right? as an academic paper. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. Yeah. Questions left unanswered, I think. Yes. But, you know, thinking about those things, and, the, and, and that's when we shape our profession in the future, is how do we recalibrate how academic institutions, how certifying institutions see us mm-hmm. as surgeons and the contributions we make. And there are ways to fix that. It just needs to be thought about mm-hmm. in the room when the the um, the accreditation and um, reward system is created. Mm. Yeah. No, that's so true. Oh my goodness. Such great conversation. I, we, we should move on to our second journal article. Cause this is actually something that I very much want to get your opinion on. Cause I have questions on this. Um, the next article is entitled hospital revenue cost and contribution margin in inpatient versus outpatient primary total joint arthroplasty. Um, you are also the senior author on this article published in the Journal of Arthroplasty in August of 2022. And so what was the inspiration behind this article? So I don't want to rehash all of the stuff about payment policy that's been going on in the past few years. But as we all know, um, the total hip and total knee replacement have come off of Medicare's inpatient only list mm-hmm. in the past several years. So so total knee replacement came off of the inpatient only list in the first day of 2018 mm-hmm. and total hip came off the first day of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that means is that those, what the intention was, was that those surgeries are no, uh, surgeries are no longer required to be inpatient under Medicare. What it turned into was that, okay, now all of these patients are outpatient and less proven otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and the difference is, is that especially when we're talking about government payers, and I don't want to put everybody to sleep here, but um, the inpatient is considered Medicare Part A, and it's a mm-hmm. different pot of money that the money comes out of. Mm-hmm. Outpatient surgery is, is from Medicare Part B, and it's another pot of money that the money comes out of from Medicare. And it affects the patient differently, and it affects the institution differently in terms of how much money is paid to the institution for each one of those things. Mm-hmm. So 
what we were thinking about when we considered that article was what happens to the institution when all of a sudden all these folks are being pushed into that second category of, of outpatient surgery and can an institution like a hospital that has to be a safety net hospital survive mm-hmm. if most of their total joints are considered outpatients so we're really looking at what margin can the hospital make if that shift happens mm. um and it turns out as which is no surprise that it's not financially viable for right. hospital or big institutions that are safety net hospitals to to have a predominance of outpatient total joints mm-hmm. um because the inpatient total joints those patients are sicker and now they're even sicker than they used to be because in the past oh I'll stay in the hospital a couple of days it's fine uh, even though I'm healthy, but now you're being pushed towards that outpatient setting. So mm-hmm. all of the reasonably healthy or even marginally healthy, marginally functionally uh, okay people are pushed towards that second category and only the sickest people with the fewest social uh, resources, people with the worst functional status are left as inpatients. So not only are there fewer of them, but they also cost more to take care of because they mm-hmm. have more problems. They're not diluted by the reasonably healthy folks that stay as inpatients that doesn't cost the hospital a lot of money. So when you think about that, that's not good for safety net hospitals. Right. So uh, it needs to be reconsidered and reconfigured in terms of how can you keep hospitals alive mm-hmm. um, when this is happening? Um, and we don't have the answers in that article, but we needed to present the data because it's very important. Yes. No, and and I know that you talked about how there's that patient population where everybody's being pushed toward outpatient and these very, very, very sick folks. It's a very, I, I feel like it's putting patients at risk. And I feel like there are hospital systems in the, at least in my state and probably in New York as well, where there are certain hospitals that are able to just do the healthiest of the healthy. You know, they're just Mm -hmm. able to do those healthy patients. They're just able to do the outpatient procedures. And then that pushes more of those sick patients toward hospitals like mine, where we see very, very, very complex things. And I just feel like, I feel like there's an ethical issue where you're only selecting for your prime total joint candidates and basically pushing those other folks toward hospital systems that are already strained. Well, and that's something that's been described in the past called the cherry picking and lemon dropping. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so you pick out the best patients for the institutions that, and the, the facilities, I guess it's the best way to put it, the facilities that are one can be more profitable. Mm-hmm. And then the facilities that are stuck with the sicker patients or the patients who need more support uh, lose money. Right. Because the inpatient payments are not rising at the same rate as the inpatient costs for mm-hmm. institutions and facilities. Um, another uh, publication that we, uh, something else we published this year was about RAPT scores. And the RAPT score is a functional score. Hmm. Um, and it's uh, uh, six questions and you get points for each question in terms of how good or bad the function and the support of the patient is. And in the past, a RAP score um, under six was considered, oh, you have to think about a facility, like a a rehab Mm -hmm. or something Mm -hmm. after surgery. And then a RAP over eight or nine was considered, or nine was considered, okay, you can 
definitely say that it can go home. And the people in the middle were intermediate. Mm -hmm. And we looked at the scores over time. And what's happened is that the folks who were considered inpatient in the past, their scores have come down substantially in terms of what our average score was before versus what our average score is now for an inpatient. Mm -hmm. So an inpatient score used to be eight. Now an inpatient score is like six and a half. Wow. So these are very people who don't have social support, people who have very poor function before. And then the outpatient has been pushed. It used to be nine Mm -hmm. or 10 and it's being pushed towards eight. Those people were considered intermediate before where they might even go to a rehab after surgery are now going home immediately as outpatients. So Mm -hmm. you are shifting the patient population that might've even gone to a a nursing home post-op. Now they're going home post-op day zero or post-op day one. Mm-hmm. it's a very different amount of work for the facility and for the surgeon to manage those patients post-op because instead of being in the hospital where you're like, all right, at least they know they're home and, you know, somebody's doing PT with them versus mm-hmm. not home. They're at least they're in a hospital and somebody's doing PT with them versus going home. You're not even sure what's going to happen to them. Maybe right. nobody's there. They may be lying on the floor. You have no idea. Right. So now I call my patients. Mm-hmm. When they go home a few days later, make sure everything okay. You're taking your medicine. Are you, is the PT coming? Mm-hmm. You know, they actually show up. Right. Because these are now things that you as a surgeon are responsible for. Right. Which is completely another aspect of costs that we're not even seeing. Like the um, communication with patients, whether it's through EMR or whether it's through phone calls, That that's not free work, but it's literally, it's not, you're not getting paid for all that work. And so that's another quote unquote indirect cost. That's not even being calculated. Well, normally for 90 days post-op, everything that the surgeon does is considered part of the surgery, which I think is absurd in some ways Mm -hmm. because 90 days is a very long time. And what surgeons are paid right now for a a total joint is very small considered Mm -hmm. to, you know, what it, what it costs to fix your refrigerator is about the same as what it, it or actually probably more than what mm-hmm. it costs to do a total hip replacement from the Medicare uh, payment perspective to the surgeon. Right. Um, but uh, there are now codes that can uh, be used for pre-hospital work that mm-hmm. thanks to um, advocacy by mm-hmm. AUKUS and by AOS, now they exist for the pre-work that's required to optimize patients because mm-hmm. we have had a lot of conversations with regulators about how to improve payments to doctors because they do a lot of this work that's not captured mm-hmm. in the bundle payment scheme. Because the problem is Medicare thinks about things in terms of fee for service, but they most of us are in these bundled payment or um, value-based payment plans in facilities. So those two things don't reconcile with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there are some codes that can be used for pre-work. Um, it's not a lot, but it's something. Right. Now, the the idea of the EMR and the amount of work that doctors are being uh, forced to do now, answering every single question that anybody has about anything 24-7 mm-hmm. is another thing that needs to be tackled. Now, I think some people think, oh, how could you possibly want to charge a patient for post-operative questions? I agree. If it's in the immediate post-op period, you should be answering questions. But there are things that are, they come three, four months later that, oh, my other knee hurts now, what do I do? So you're basically doing your decision-making, your E&M decision-making mm-hmm. 
on an EMR message that you get zero credit for, but takes a lot of time to do. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, there's a lot that needs to be fixed here with regard to how physicians, the onus that's placed on physicians to be available 24 seven and answer every question, regardless of what they are with no screening, Mm -hmm. um, that needs to be addressed because it's it's too much work on doctors and we're burned out to begin with now. Right. So how is that supposed to help us? Right. No, it's so true. And I think that um, there, th- with COVID and the way that we had to transform medicine, I think that that also kind of, I feel like we haven't seen the repercussions of that yet either where we're doing a lot more things telemedicine, which is great. But I feel like there are so like the first things you learn in medical school is to look at the patient and to examine them. And it's just like, how can I make any concrete decision that I feel confident in if I can't even put my hands on the joint? So yeah, it just kind of blows my mind how that's how we've changed. Well, there are tricks to doing that, but that's the, the, the patients tend to be the problem here because they don't know how to employ their own technology to, to do an exam of the knee that we want to do, that we can do. We need you to sit and put the phone here and do this. My patients can barely get the phone to point at their face because they're older folks. I get a tour of their house when they're trying to show me their (laughs) knee. Oh, that's your dog. No, that's your window. So, so there's a a few barriers in terms of the knowledge of how to use technology from especially older patients. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't know how to use it. Um, And also a lot of my patients will do their telehealth visit while they're sitting in their car. Oh gosh. <laughs> All right. So I'm not, how can I examine you or look at your, even look at your joint if you're right. sitting in a car seat, right. you know, you can flip, you can sort of show it to me, but there's no real way to do it. Um, so the rules for how this technology is used, I mean, they need to be a little more clear mm-hmm. here. If it's your phone, put your phone on something so that you can, you can don't have to use your hands to hold right. it and you can stand up, you can show, but mo- most people can't do that. Um, they can barely even turn the thing on. So I'm not sure if as our younger, our patients who are more tech savvy get older, Mm -hmm. it'll be a little easier to do that because I think a lot of the folks who are older now really aren't tech savvy at all. Right. Barely can use a cell phone. Um, Mm -hmm. excuse me. Um, so I think as our population ages, those folks who know how to use technology will also age and perhaps this will be a little easier, Mm -hmm. but as others have pointed out to me, yes, but those people are still not going to be up on the technology that the young people use. Right. So I, don't, I think there's a constant catch up here. It, no, it's so um, true. But telehealth, I think, is a valuable tool, especially for, oh, show me your incision. Um, mm-hmm. That makes patients not have to drive over to you or see you or come to the office for specific things that, oh, I just I can take care of this just so long as I can see your mm-hmm. incision, so long as I can see your face Right. When you're talking to me. Um, but there's a lot, there's a lot of work that needs to be done with regard to how physicians are valued mm-hmm. for answering all of these questions that are posed to us through all of this technology. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not well, it hasn't really been thought out when mm-hmm. these, when these systems are developed, like, well, so who's doing all this work? Right. And is there any time off from this work? Like when you, you know, 
used to be you go home you go home you had a pager and if you were needed you get paged but otherwise that was it (laughs) you didn't have to constantly be opening your computer and i mean you can't take a vacation no people are always and it's literally whenever i I remember some of my attendings will always say that whenever they go on vacation at least two of their post-ops will come to the ed it's almost guaranteed where it's just like the, all all their people just start to come up like during their vacation. Like somebody knows about this. And so some, some higher power is aware and they make your patients go to the <laughs> ER. But there's also, I mean, it's, it's difficult because even when I have someone covering my inbox, it still comes to me. So mm-hmm. I'm, I, I feel compelled to look at it. Right. I know. I remember there was a surgeon, um, Dr. Carrie Coleus in Australia talked about how her system is kind of almost like an OB-GYN practice where you're the, the, it's like a pediatric orthopedic practice and they have a team of surgeons and it's like the team of surgeons takes care of the patient and such that when they have like these rotations and they are able to kind of not like switch off doctors, but like, you know, when you're pregnant and at least the practice that I went to, I saw like all these different OBs such that all of them knew me before I went and delivered. And it was kind of like that same model, but for this practice, such that when a surgeon was off, the surgeon was off. It, it was an interesting concept to apply to an orthopedic practice. Well, especially for peds, because, mm-hmm. the, you know, peds is one of those things where parents are, they get anxious and they want to contact you. And, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, one of those things that turns into a big problem if you can't answer. Yeah. So having a rotate, a real rotation of who's on call mm-hmm. um, is important. I mean, I have patients call for refills on a Sunday um, and I get a, I get a page through my, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and when I answer, say, Oh, I thought it was just going to be the on-call person. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I am the on-call person. I'm on call all the time. Like that's what happens when you call my office, you get me. Yeah. Um, and then they feel like, Oh, I feel so bad. I'm like, don't feel bad. But you know, when I say, please ask for refills during business hours, I mean it. This is why. (laughs) Please just do that because, you know, otherwise, you know, I'm going to have to stop in the middle of what I'm doing and probably not be able to refill an opioid anyway, because it's on a mobile phone. They won't right. do that. Right. In New York, at least. Right. So, so it's, it, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot that needs to be done in this space in terms of how we can, uh, improve and, and maintain the mental health of our, our resources in healthcare, meaning mm-hmm. people, which is the most important resource we have, um, while still taking care of patients. And that's really the thing that comes to, that's the, the real conclusion. Hmm. No, that's so interesting. Uh, Dr. Lajam, I know we've talked a lot about these big problems that I feel like we need to solve in medicine currently, but I would love to discuss kind of what your future goals are moving forward for you clinically and research, as well as your work with all the organizations that you're a part of. Oh, wow. That's a lot. That's a bit, that's another big question. Uh, a lot. <laughs> um, but you know, I, 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 I like uh, being involved in, um, in research and teaching. I also like doing clinical practice and, and taking care of patients. And it's really fun to do that. Um, in terms of the future, you know, keep, keep being of service when I can to organizations, uh, however they want to use me as a, as a person, as a leader, as a, as a, as a worker, as a committee member. Mm-hmm. Um, so keep on doing that because it's important to our profession that folks serve and lead and help shape the future of you know, our profession. Right. Um, so I'm very happy to do that in any way that I'm called on to do it. Yeah. Um, in terms of, uh, 
what I think the future of orthopedics is. And I think we've talked about it a lot here and that's technology. How do we use technology responsibly and well to make our lives easier as physicians and also help our patients? And those are questions that younger surgeons need to be thinking about. How do I use technology when it's going to benefit my patients? And that should really be the most important thing because um, Dan Berry uh, from Mayo, who's one of my mentors, gives a talk about technology and ask the question, why are you using this technology? Is this to promote your practice? Mm. Is this for public relations? Or is it really to help the patient? Mm. And we need to keep thinking about that when we employ technology, when we do things, whether it's a a clinical application, whether it's a communication application, Mm -hmm. um, why are we using technology? And how can we enhance not only patient care, but also education? And how do we learn? And how do we train people safely without putting us at risk Mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, so that I think that's really a big, big thing in the future is how do we train surgeons while minimizing their own risk? Right. Yeah. No, it's so interesting. It's funny because I, um, I, when you're speaking about technology, the one thing that comes to my mind is I got a headlamp this year um, that I operate with. And oh my goodness, I can't believe I have not had this thing like since day one, it's just such a game changer, especially in Ankh. I'm always looking in a hole. And so it's just nice mm-hmm. to be able to like actually use it. And what's funny is that now all of my attendings, first of all, I always brag about it and I always need to have their validation of how a wonderful purchase this was, but, um, they love it. And they're, they are always like, so you're bringing the headlamp. Like literally I have a case tomorrow. My attending's just like, this is going to be a great case uh, for that headlamp of yours. And I'm like, yes, it is, you know? And, it's just, it's such a nice thing to have. And it's, it does help, as you say, improve patient care because you're just better able to see. And I think that that's kind of a nice little thing that I've enjoyed is I'm like, gosh, I wish I had this sooner because it really has made a difference in the way that I operate. We have um, lamps on our um, mm-hmm. spacesuit hoods. Yes. So there's some with and some without. And I always get the one with because it, it makes a huge difference to be able to see. Yes. No, it's so true. Oh my goodness. Because the OR lights never are adequate. And I think never. that's one of those things that why can't we fix that? <laughs> it's been around for a long time. I why know. isn't that better? <laughs> it's so crazy because I feel like in all of my operating rooms, at least in my hospital, I feel like there's a different one in each of like, at least at the main hospital. I feel like it was just like, we were just like, let's try this one. And then they would install it. And then like in another room, it's a different company and all these sorts of things. I'm just like, why though? Oh yeah, that's gosh. one of those never-ending stories. When yes. Is, when, is gonna, when are they going to fix the lights? You're again? like, hmm, all right. Yeah. Oh my god. Then you go and operate in a place like Haiti, and you realize, okay, we have it pretty good. Yes. <laughs> You're just like, oh, oh, that's right. That's right. We're good. We're spoiled. Oh my gosh. Well, Doctor Lejam, I do want to move into our final segment, which I like to call the final five, which are the same five questions I ask every guest on the She Can Fix a podcast. And so my first final five question for you is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? My favorite procedure to perform is a revision total knee replacement. Mm. Why I like doing that procedure is because many times when you identify what's wrong, either mechanically or otherwise, and you can correct it, you have a giant transformation of the patient from someone who is miserable to someone who can't believe they can walk again and feel better. Hmm. Uh, Revision is a very satisfying operation in that respect. Wow. Those are tough. 
Those are, I, I love doing them. Oh my gosh. There's so many things you need to think about. What's funny is like, you know, we always joke that like joint replacement surgeons, they know for surgery is the right knee, the left knee, the right hip, the left hip, but it's, it's just, it's so much more than that. It really is. It just kind of blows your mind. Or a vision is, is a, if you can figure out what's wrong, that's the hard part. Yeah. Oh gosh. Uh, question number two, what are your go-to topics for Grand Rounds presentations? Well, those have evolved over mm-hmm. time. Um, I like to talk about the metaverse and VR and XR, AR technology. Um, Mm -hmm. That to me is very interesting. And I think it's part of the future. Um, And recently I've started to talk a little bit about orthopedic recalls and what Mm -hmm. surgeons need to know and what we need to do about them, because it's something that people don't understand. um, And many people feel lost when they address them. Uh, Another topic that I like to talk about, which is a little depressing, but it's true, is the payment policy and how that's evolved over the years Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, how physicians versus uh, institutions are being paid. And finally, talking about um, access to care, health disparities, and how policy impacts health care access. Mm. Very cool. Wow. This is usually the hardest one. Uh, what is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? That is very tough because there's a lot of really good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say it's not a patient story. It's really seeing people you train succeed mm-hmm. and lead. That's mm-hmm. really what it is, is seeing folks that you've mentored in the past, they get up there and then they're like killing it. I love seeing that. Right. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And then um, what are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? My favorite activities outside of the OR, outside of medicine. Um, well, I, I like spending time with my family. Uh, mm-hmm. We have. I also have a, a giant German Shepherd whom I love more than I should because I just adore this dog so much. Um, so I like being with them. Mm-hmm. I'm learning how to play golf as an adult, which is very challenging. Mm. Um, The other thing that I've recently started is uh, I've just completed my level one um, certified scotch and certified bourbon professional from the Council of Whiskey Masters, which is very interesting. Wow. Um, Learning how to, well, it's not, I mean, it's very interesting. It's it's a very rich um, topic and learning how to uh, taste and, and guide other people on those types of, uh, right. Of, of pursuits is, is fun and interesting. And uh, so I'm going to see if I can get to level three. That's a little tough though, but we'll see. Did you get a a whiskey advent calendar uh, as one of your uh, holiday (laughs) gifts? No, I did not. (laughs) No, I did not. This is a, it's actually surprisingly academic. Oh, wow. um, learning about this, it's chemistry. I mean, you know, think right. about it. Distillation is chemistry and, and learning how uh, it evolved over the centuries is fascinating and learning where flavors come from and how to distinguish them and how to guide people and what they want and right. uh, guide tastings. It's, it's a lot of fun. Oh my gosh. That's, that's, that's awesome. That's very cool. Plus you get a little lapel pin and a oh certificate. And- I, well, I mean, if you, the pin is everything, isn't it? I know, especially in orthopedics. We love our pins and our badges. <laughs> exactly. and everything. Oh my God. I love when you go to academy meetings and you have like, you see just like a rainbow of colors on people's. Oh, like... I love doing it. Well, I, I do that on purpose. Like it hits the floor and my, I give them, here guys, let's pose with the, the thing. I think it's hilarious. Oh my God. That's awesome. All right. 
Uh, Dr. Lajab, my final question for you is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? Oof. Mm. That's tough. I mean, so I think the theme of this whole conversation, part of it has been um, advocate for yourself and your profession, Mm -hmm. because if you don't do that, it's going to disappear and you're going to turn into a cog in a very large wheel. We already kind of are, but Mm -hmm. preserve what you can about our, our profession and the recognition you deserve and the reward you deserve because you Mm -hmm. deserve it. Right. Don't let other people tell you that you don't. Um, Second of all, do things that are going to enhance your career. Mm-hmm. Don't let others tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, if, you, if someone says that, you know, you look a certain way or you have a certain lifestyle and therefore you have to do this in orthopedics, don't listen to them. Do what mm-hmm. you think is the right thing for your own career and to get you where you want to go. Yeah. Um, and finally, have a good time. Do things that make you happy because it's your, your rest of your life is your career. So you need to make sure that you like what you're doing. If you don't like it, you need to change it. Yeah. Awesome. Dr. Lajam, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Well, thank you so much, Alana. I really appreciate you having me on. And for you uh, doing this podcast as a resident, I know that's a lot of work on top of everything else that you have to do as a resident. And uh, you're doing a fantastic job. And thank you for serving our profession like this. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Claudette Lejean. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at www.shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe.